If you will take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and reading here verses 1 to 10, and uh, this is uh, all about the unity of the Spirit and walking in that unity as God's people. So, Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And there is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he bring his blessing as we hear it now proclaimed. I'm sure most of you know our creeds and uh, especially uh, that portion of the creed where it brings us to consider uh, one of the tenets of our faith and that we believe in the one holy Catholic Church. Uh, That word one, I think, is one of the essential parts of it, not just holy and Catholic, meaning uh, a a holy set-apart group of people and uh, universal throughout the world, that's what the word Catholic means, but that one church, we are all keenly aware, Christ has one body, and uh, with that one body, it consists of the elect from every nation, uh, the ones who God the Father has chosen from before eternity and brought forth in the time and history of this world uh, to be saved by the Lord Jesus. Again, um, another line from uh, a famous hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Uh, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. And that is the Church of Christ. And even though we understand there is one church and Jesus only has one body, there is only one bride of our Savior, we do know and we look out upon the church and we see that there are many denominations and many individual congregations. We like to tease our Baptist friends. I used to be Baptist, so I'm allowed to tease them too. Uh, your denomination of one. Uh, we're a denomination of 270. Uh, you know, those things, exi- we understand there's a lot of differences out there, a lot of individual churches and denominations. And yet we confess there is one church, one body of Christ. And what makes the church one 
is the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why we're able to say, one head, one body. It's the logic that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, why am I uh, emphasizing that? And that is because this, eve- uh, this afternoon we are looking in particular at verse 3 and what it is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word unity comes from the same word one does. <laughs> it, it would be like Paul saying, keep the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity, oneness. That is the picture that God wants us to convey to this world what the church is. And one church is to be uh, the visible picture of the kingdom of God. The one church, it consists of all, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.12, it consists of all who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet there are many denominations, many individual churches. What do we make of that? Some think it's scandalous. Some uh, work very hard in ecumenical efforts to drop the things that, well, I wouldn't say necessarily divide us, but distinguish us from one another and, and bring us together under the umbrella of that oneness. Uh, They base that on 1 Corinthians 1.13, where Paul is dealing with divisiveness within the church in Corinth and He sees how some are following Paul and some Cephas or Peter and some Apollos and some uh, of the elite ones who are just following Christ. And he says there, is Christ divided? Uh, I personally, and I hope this doesn't sound too scandalous, I have no issue with denominations. I have no issues with individual churches. Personally, I, I see it as something that is reflective of our desires for that oneness, but the realities of the divisions and distinctions that do exist this side of eternity. Because if we truly were one in everything, that would be heaven, wouldn't it? (laughs) And we're not there yet. And so we're wrestling with these things. And Paul even says in in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19, he says, No doubt there must be factions among you so that you may see who is approved, who is right. Because while we may have differences in some doctrines, differences in worship, and, and that we, we do understand there is still oneness because of who Christ is and because of what he has done to redeem his people. I think about the seven churches in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. It's very interesting when you look at them on a map. You have Ephesus all the way over in a horseshoe to Laodicea. And about 500 kilometers separates Ephesus from Laodicea. It's not a big distance for us today at all. Five hours or less depending on how fast your car is, you can go from one to the other and and visit all of these churches in a day. 
if you wanted to. But isn't it interesting that when you read of how Jesus addresses every one of their churches with all their differences, no two of those churches were alike in their practices and in their standing. Have you ever noticed that? There were some, there was Ephesus that had all their doctrine in order, but they lacked love for God. They skipped over the issues of love and, and adoration for the gospel that saved them, and they made doctrine more their idol than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you get all the way over to Laodicea, and here is a group who just says, hey, we don't need anything. We're quite happy on our own. And, and, and Jesus is about ready to spit them out of his mouth. But what does he say of every one of them? To the church. To the church. To the church. I think uh, we in our day, as much as we confess one holy Catholic church, and we look at these seven churches of Revelation, and in point, I'll say this just as a passing rabbit trail, I believe those seven churches give us the picture of Christ's church on earth in every single generation. And when you read that, it's not a, it's not a scope of just what was going on in the church in that first generation, in that first century of her history. It's indicative of the church. We have some that have have uh, forsaken love for the gospel and emphasized doctrine all the way over to others who really look like synagogues of Satan and we would never think of ourselves being a member of it. And yet, it's the church. And there's some there that I know we would be hard-pressed <laughs> to join, let alone admit them under the umbrella of the church. <laughs> we have that today. It's a hard thing when you step back and you look at this. But as much as the one visible church struggles with unity, let's bring it really close to home. <laughs> so does the particular congregation. We struggle with unity. We struggle with oneness. I don't say this to hash up old issues. But the last two years has revealed that, hasn't it? <laughs> I don't know any church within at least the reform sector of Ontario that I'm familiar with that did not have struggles of unity. <laughs> it wasn't over doctrine wasn't over the spiritual life of the church in some ways, wasn't over immorality, <laughs> over things like a mask. How far do you submit? Hard issues, perhaps on one hand, but on the other hand, very earthly issues <laughs> that have passed away now. But the impact of that time period and of those struggles still remains. 
We're still dealing with it. I think it's important to note that it's a very good thing our sinful conduct and our sinful condition does not necessarily destroy the essential unity of the church. And that's only because we have as a cornerstone the Lord Jesus Christ, a foundation that can't be shaken. And praise God for that. Because some of us have done a lot to shape the church on both sides of any, any, anything concerning COVID. We, we've done it. And it's a great thing to know that one of the works of Jesus Christ in heaven is to be our intercessor. And, and we can know from Scripture how Jesus has been praying for us ever since he ascended to the Father's right hand. You read John 17. And you are reading how Jesus intercedes for his name, his glory, how he intercedes for his church and all of us. And what was one of the great things about his intercession there, when he he comes to pray for the church, he says, I pray for those who will believe in me through the word of the apostles and the ministry and spread of that gospel that they will accomplish I pray for those who will believe in me that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us and that the world may believe that you sent me. Thank God, Jesus prays for us in these ways. Because we are, uh, whether we realize it or not, a very diverse people. Every congregation is made up of different people. And I've often said to my congregations that I have pastored, it is an amazing thing. If you want to know that God is with us, just look around and see everyone that you have now been united to (laughs) and made one. Who can keep this all together? We struggle sometimes to keep our families together. But Christ in His Spirit keeps us together as one. And it's a marvelous thing, the work that is done, which we don't always consider, isn't it? I've often said in marriage counseling, I've often said that there's a marvelous thing that happens when a man and a woman come and unite together in marriage. What does Scripture say they become? One. Now you will hear worldly philosophy, and it is worldly philosophy that will come and tell you opposites attract. That's a lie. And they often say that because it's when they see this married couple and and they're conducting themselves, and, and it becomes clear they, they have differences. And, and those differences come out, and you have to deal with them, and it's like, she's like this, and he's like this, and she likes this, and he likes this, and, and, and you'd almost think opposites attract. 
No. I've done this exercise with every couple that I've married. Tell me ten reasons why you want to marry this person. And without fail, without fail, seven out of ten are the same reasons. And they're not allowed to tell each other when they're doing this. Some of you might say, well, I've got to try that now. Well, it's too late now. You're already married. So you've got a lot more to work on. But it's the differences that come out. But in their oneness, what do they have to do? You have to work through them. And more essential is when those differences that come out make you realize what it means to be a husband and a wife who are now comparable to each other and able to help each other work through so that they maintain that unity and oneness. If there's ever an illustration that reflects the glory and the wonder of God, one being in three persons, it's marriage. Jesus alludes to that in Matthew 19. God created man and woman, and when they come together, they are one. And after the image of God, they have been created, and in the image of God, they are made one. You know, all those other examples that people try to use to to describe or to teach the Trinity to people fall apart. But the marriage illustration doesn't. (laughs) Two persons... Now, and it's a mystery, an amazing mystery, how many of us are able to make it beyond five and ten years in our sinfulness. But in God's grace, many of us do. And there is work to maintain that unity. And that's where we come into our text that Paul is dealing with. Paul has spent three chapters laying out the theology of God, the theology of Christ, the theology of the gospel, the theology of the atonement, the theology of the church evangelizing to the world. He's he's laid out all that base theology that is ours to believe and to know. And now he comes in chapter 4 and he says to the church, now you need to walk worthy of all of this theology that you've been called in. You need to walk worthy as Christ's church. And what's the very first thing that he focuses on? It's almost as if God knew what we were going to be like. Keep the unity of the Spirit. And it isn't that the theology is what is uniting us. It's the unity of the Spirit that we are to keep with all that we know and believe and understand. That is conduct worthy of the gospel. And it is first focused on with all of us working together. And that word endeavor, it doesn't come out in the English language as much as it should, but it's a constant endeavoring. It's an earnest, diligent. It's something that we must be focused on. 
to keep, to guard, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. You look at this church, and you understand this church is a fellowship not established per se by those who first came together and said, let's have a church in Russell. It is a church established by the Holy Spirit who has made you the body of Christ. That's an awesome thought. And why it's important to begin there with the Holy Spirit and have that focus in mind, it's because at the deepest level, as the body of Christ, at the deepest level, we have this reality. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us collectively a home for the Father and the Son to dwell. John 14, 23. I will send forth my Spirit and He will come to you that the Father and I may dwell within you. What a wonder, isn't it? That God would come and say, I am going to place my very presence in your midst. And the Son and I, the actual words are, we will come and make our home with you. Isn't that glorious? Think about it. You know, in, in an earthly sense, the Queen of England celebrating you know, her uh, special uh, jubilee. Calling you up and saying, Hi, I want to come and live with you. <laughs> and you're thinking, uh, My house is not a palace. <laughs> I think I can put you in the basement? No. We, 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 we would understand what a wonder that would be. And, and go exponentially to the greater. This is God saying, I will make my home with you by my Spirit. And so we're called to maintain this unity of the Spirit. And the first thing we really need to focus on, as he says there in verse 2, is, is our conduct, our conduct toward one another. And, and there in verse 2, he, he makes it clear what, what your unity is dependent upon. You would think he would say, uh, doctrine. That's what our unity is most dependent upon. But you look at verse 2 and that's not what he says, is it? <laughs> With all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. These are graces that God himself exercises as God toward us. And he now says to you, because of who I am and the graces that I have implanted within you, use these graces now to keep this unity that the Holy Spirit has built up. And this is part of the one anothering, again, that's at a deeper level than the superficial, hi, how are you? Hope you're doing okay. Goodbye. And we leave. 
It comes to deal with the same things that husbands and wives within their homes have to work on, and especially when children are present and you're, you're trying to uh, nurture that, that family home. Well, this spills over into the church. And the first one that he says there is lowliness. And, and I want to say as we look at each one of these, that they all present Christ and the way he works towards us. Lowliness. And the whole issue of lowliness is having that humble perspective of yourself so that you are willing to defer to the other. Lowliness. That's, that's what it means. Everywhere you'll see that in the New Testament, it will reflect this humble attitude of the mind with a desire to defer to others. Again, Romans 12, much the same as Ephesians. The first 11 chapters deals with the whole theology and doctrine of the gospel. And then you get to chapter 12. Now, let's deal with its outworking in your midst. And the first thing I want you to do is to have a humility where you do not think more highly of yourself than you should, but to think soberly. And that's so that you can learn to defer to the other. That's hard, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I, I will say that personally. That's one of the hardest things to do, especially when you know you're right. <laughs> facetiously said. But that's, that's the human fallen spirit, isn't it? And, and if we think, I don't have lowliness, well, if you're in Christ, you do. I mean, what was, what, think about John 13. We know it begins with Jesus saying he knew his hour had come and loving his disciples, he loved them to the end. And then it goes on to talk about how he got up and disrobed and put on, uh, uh, picked up a towel in a basin and went around to wash every other disciple's feet. And, and all the disciples are together collectively going. <gasps> and when he gets to Peter, Peter is saying, no, Lord, this is beneath you. You can't be doing this. You notice Jesus' words to Peter were, if I do not do this, you have no part with me. You think on that statement. If you do not allow me to be lowly for your sake, you have no part with me. That's the Lord. And then after he does that, he gets back and he looks at them, now you go and do the same. It's the presentation of Christ in our life to one another. Lowliness. And in gentleness. And the issue of gentleness, you'll see some of these, most of these reflect a measure of the fruit of the Spirit, but with gentleness, it's, it's responding to offenses without anger or rashness. Hard. <laughs> Nothing here is easy. But that's what it is. You're, you're responding to offenses without anger or rashness. Children, if you can answer this question, I hope you can. Who was the meekest man other than Jesus? Who was the meekest man in the Bible? Does anyone know? 
Anyone? You can raise your hand and answer. Huh? It was Moses. In Numbers 12, he is acclaimed as the meekest man or the most humble or otherwise known the most gentle. That's, that's what that word means. Most gentle or meek man. And you know when they made that testimony of Moses was when his sister and his brother came up to him and said, Moses, you're not fit to lead us. And do you know what the reason was? Because you married a foreigner. Now, would you be offended by that? <laughs> it seems small in some people's eyes, but you married an Ethiopian. You're not even following God's laws and rules. And you want to lead us? Now, that's pretty offensive. Now, today, such a person would be uh, socially mediated off Facebook <laughs> in that new social justice that is, surrounds us. <laughs> Wouldn't last a week. But then it says, and Moses was the meekest man, the gentlest man. He bore that offense without anger or rashness. He went to the Lord, and even when the Lord exercised judgment, he came and he prayed, Lord, have mercy on my sister, please. Gentleness. Long-suffering. That's a great word. It's easy to uh, define. It's better than the word patience. Long-suffering. Suffer long with people. Have a persevering patience with the weaknesses and faults of others. You know, again, all of these attributes are applied to our God. Remember when the Lord uh, honored Moses' request, when Moses said, Lord, I want to see your glory, and God hid him in the cleft of that rock in Exodus 34, and he passes by him, and Moses is only able to see like the heel of God's glory, and he's already changed, and God passes by him, and and he declares the glory of his name as he does so. And what is the first thing that he says? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy. I suffer a long time with you, Israel, so that my mercy may work in your lives. And right after God does that, we always stop there because it's a wondrous text and we learn a lot about who God is. But do you know what Moses' response was in verse 8? Just as God revealed his glory in that way and he saw the long-suffering nature of God, Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth and said, uh, worshipped and said, Oh God, I pray, if we have found grace in your sight, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity. Oh, God, have mercy on us. <laughs> and, and it's a reflection of realizing, wow, has God ever been long-suffering with us? And we're, we're about six months into this journey. <laughs> 
It's one of the funny things with Israel. Three days in after seeing all that they saw in Egypt and three days in, God, you brought us out here to kill us. Let's go back. How many remember the cucumbers? You know, it's silly, isn't it? But that's the heart of man. But our hearts have been changed. The work of the Spirit, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing in love. That word bearing, forbearing, in love. That means to endure sin until repentance comes and mercy may prevail. Isn't it a great word when you understand that definition? Enduring sin so that repentance may come and mercy can prevail. And again, that's spoken of God in Christ. God put up with the sins of the world until the fullness of time in sending forth His Son, who would be the propitiation for all His people. Romans 3, 20, 25. He endured. I mean, this world deserves to be, to be uh, cast out, judged, condemned, and, and done away with every single day. And he forbears. Why does God forbear? Because I know who needs to repent. And I want my mercy to prevail. And he says to us, bear with one another in love. And you bring it all together, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing in love, Again, we're insufficient of ourselves to those things. But the Holy Spirit has come and brought the glory of Christ of whom all of those words speak. And they speak of Christ in how God through His Son has dealt with us who deserve His wrath and judgment but instead have received amazing grace. And he says to each one of us, now be Christ to each other in these ways. And this is the conduct that works at keeping that unity. You think about whatever issues may have been within your church, and how much lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing in love have you exercised to those who were opposite or perhaps even offended. And you say, yeah, but. Yeah, but. They, they want to interfere with the obedience. It's hard obedience. But it brings us to this next point in verse 3. That this is what we are doing, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Here's what bonds us together. You might say, yeah, but you don't know what they said or did to me. And, and I don't, and I don't need to, but I can say, yes, but I do know what our sins and our offenses were against God. And He certainly forgives us. It brings us to this thing of what is the bond of our unity? 
And you notice what it says there. It's peace. We heard about it this morning. Told you peace would come back again. What is that adhesive that makes all of us stick together as the one body of Jesus Christ? It is the peace of God. Again, Romans 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ, who is our peace. If you were to go back again to Ephesians chapter 2, and may I commend you, read that chapter. And he talks there about the peace that Christ has accomplished between us and God. And thereby the peace that he has accomplished between us and one another. To make us that temple and dwelling place of God. And it is that peace that Christ has accomplished in his atoning sacrifice for us. And, and we, we become justified by faith. It's not what we have done. It's what God has done for us in his son that has enabled us to be reconciled. My friends, think about this. If there were ever two things that should never be united, ever. It's the holy God of heaven with us wretched sinners here on earth. Sin cannot abide in his presence. God is of pure eyes than to behold evil. And, and, and God has said the soul that sins shall die. And he's just in condemning and doing all of that. And if there's ever anything that should never be joined together... It's a wretched sinner and a holy God. And yet he's done it. <laughs> and he's done it by the blood of Jesus. And, and Paul has said in chapter 2, he has said, this is what God has done. You who are without God and without hope in this world, you now have God. Hallelujah. <laughs> Bless the Lord. And how has God accomplished that? Through the lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, forbearing love of Jesus Christ. That's why we call it amazing grace. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, O oh God, should save me, should love me. And he comes to say to us that same atoning event of the cross that has reconciled you, a wretched sinner, with the holy God, has broken down the walls of separation between one another. That same event he comes back to this. We're all together on that one narrow way that leads to life. That's where we are. With all of our differences, with all of our offenses, with all of our 
opposites. We're one in Christ. Peace is the bond. And, and if that weren't enough, the last thing that he puts to us here is the foundation on which we stand. You see, it's not just our endeavoring. It's, it's the, the peace of God and as well the foundation of who God is that, that brings this unity of the Spirit. And you see in verses 4 to 6 that seven times the word one is set before us. And it's all reflective of, of God himself. There's one spirit who forms us as one body and calling us to that one hope. Think about the things that we have and all together share in the same because of the oneness of God. If you're a Christian, where are you going to be in the end? Heaven. (laughs) One hope. (laughs) Some have jokingly said that that's what life on this side of heaven is about for the church, learning to get along so that in heaven we'll have it all worked out. No, no, no. That's a parent's dream. Um, No, it's, it's, it's realizing that in eternity, God will perfect that oneness. And this side of eternity, we're not just working for it, we're yearning for it. One Spirit, one Lord, one Lord in whom we all share that one faith and by whom we have been baptized into His death and resurrection. Your salvation, though a different journey of grace, You have been saved by the same grace that I have been saved by. It's not different grace, different circumstances, but the one and same grace. And one God and Father, we all have the same Heavenly Father ruling over all things for our good in whom we live and move and have our being and whom we call upon. Isn't it a wonderful thing, the unity the Lord's Prayer brings? Our Heavenly Father. The very corporate prayer. We have this foundation. I think if you were to work backwards with this foundation and with this bond, God has done everything to make our unity possible. The only excuses that we have are us. (laughs) But we have the same spirit. My friends, this is a confession that we are called to hold together. Because with this confession, we bear witness to the world. We are God's people. With this confession, we show to the world we love each other. And the world will know that we are his disciples. Hold fast. Do not let it go.